Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Unhallowed podcast. I'm your co-host, Patrick McFarlane, and joining me is my wife, Lizzie McFarlane. Hi, thanks for joining us, everybody. So in episode one, we're going to be explaining exactly what gothic horror is and what makes a work gothic, specifically. And we have we're drawing from a lot of sources here, so be sure to check out our show notes page where we give credit to everyone that we will be quoting. And the show notes page is at unhallowedpodcast.com forward slash one. And the number one corresponds to episode one, of course. And from this point forward, the show notes pages will be found at unhallowedpodcast.com forward slash the episode number. Great. Quick tip. <laughs> Basically, this is just like introducing what we think gothic horror is and what we like about gothic horror so as i mentioned in our introductory episode episode zero that we called funeral thirst i like or what my first introduction to gothic horror would be the classics of dracula and frankenstein what was your first do you think i remember reading frankenstein for the first time and I think I read it in one sitting because I was just enraptured with it. And I really like discussions of morality and philosophy. And I think that what makes a good work of gothic fiction is something that grapples with these themes. And there's something about the dark side of humanity that I'm very interested in. Lizzie and I have talked about this before. She prefers true crime because true crime is, is this accurate to say you prefer true crime? Over horror? Over fiction. Horror fiction. I would say more often than not, I find myself watching and reading true crime. I find, I enjoy the aspects of it that are from real events funny that doesn't translate always into historical fiction but i do really like true crime in some way it's a lot more disturbing because it's true obviously right and and it goes back into that the sort of the morality discussion i think and i also really do enjoy thinking about nature versus nurture and you know the really you know kind of plumb the depths of the human condition in that way i suppose that's why i find true crime the most interesting just like every other white woman in america i suppose if we're going with stereotypes one well, the thing that i like about horror fiction is that you're not really chained down by reality in a certain way and you can play with and we'll be talking about this theme a lot in the coming episodes, but you can really play around with these concepts of liminal states, which is the in-between liminality has to do with a transition phase. So you deal with the in-between space between reality and supernatural. 
Plus, I really like gothic horror fiction because I just enjoy being spooked. And I can remember ever since I was a very small child reading, was it Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark? Was a ghost book that we had. But what are the ones with those? Are you afraid that's what of the, the dark? Well, I, I read Goosebumps and I read the Scary Stories book, you know, with the really weird messed up illustrations. You remember that one? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I really enjoyed that. And I remember I, I would ride the bus home. And maybe people in the audience can really relate to this, but I would read those scary storybooks on the bus home and I would get home before my parents got home. It would get dark really early and I would just be spooked the whole time. And then one time the exorcist was on TV and the face really scared me. <laughs> but I was like, I don't know, between eight to ten. Oh, I didn't watch the exorcist until I was an adult. Well, that's because... You grew up in a, you were sheltered. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, did you really fall in love with the supernatural after being a teenager then? You know, fall in love with horror? I, I, I too feel like I was a child when I really started enjoying the darker side of fiction. There were a few books, ghost books that were written for young adults that really focused on haunting. And I remember reading them in the car when we were driving back from skiing. And, it, you know, we're in the car and it's, you know, bright and sunny. And I'm still so scared because I never read anything like it before. One of the things that makes the work gothic can be that element of a ghost or an apparition. And then sometimes maybe it's an unnatural force of evil, you could say. Or let's see, maybe sometimes a place could just be the spooky place. The setting, yeah. So like old ruins or a a castle or a family estate that is come into disrepair, something like that. It kind of makes me think of H.P. Lovecraft's The Alchemist. He right. has he has a lot of these those stories, but The Alchemist is one that I really enjoyed kind of this old family history that's being rediscovered but there was there's something sinister about it mm, yeah that one's a good one um we'll have to kind of look at that one later too another phrase that came into our readings was a pleasing melancholy <laughs> can you relate to that right you know when you Maybe just enjoy an, being sad an emo kid thing from, right i remember those days that's our vintage but I think when you really think about a gothic horror novel, like what would what would you say, Pat, the core elements of of gothic horror would be? Well, we already kind of discussed a castle, a ruined estate. It could be intact too, but there's something dark or haunting about it. Mm -hmm. Ruined buildings that are sinister, or we already spoke about arousing a pleasing melancholy. Dungeons or underground passages, crypts and catacombs. In more modern gothic fiction, these crypts become spooky basements or attics or part of the house that is more sinister. Like in uh, The Haunting of Hill House, mm -hmm. they've got that the basement area and then the wine cellar area that they find. And then there's, you know, of course, always the room that's sort of in an almost more of like an attic storage area. Uh, that I would consider to be, you know, an an essential part of the plot in those in that story. And in other parts, it's almost as if the setting itself becomes its own character, mm -hmm. something that the characters are grappling with or 
propose adversity, uh, the setting does. Right. The This next element of labyrinths, dark corridors, or winding stairs makes me think I'm going to relate everything to Lovecraft because I've read a fair amount of Lovecraft. But it always seems like in his works, when you deal with something that's more like cosmic horror, there's dealing with something that is unknown or so massive or complex or ancient that the sheer mass or size of it makes you feel disassociated. Right, right. Makes me think of the that extension on Skyrim, where they go, where the place with all the books and the Cthulhu monsters, and do you know what I'm talking about? Is this Oblivion? Like, because in Oblivion they had like the Shimmering Isles. I can't or, remember if it's Skyrim or Oblivion. Anyway, it's Oblivion's like a, better. It's a right. Oblivion is the master, but anyway, there's you know, it's just this labyrinth full of. That you kind of have to find your way through. Anyway, I think one of my favorite parts of th- these core elements is how they explain light. And there'll be like shadows or a beam of moonlight, a candle, the power going out, something like that. I love the way that light is is described as, a, as an element in gothic horror. The other, another element are extreme landscapes or like rugged mountains, thick forests, icy wastes or extreme weather. It really kind of sets the tone. I'm thinking of Frankenstein. There's several scenes with, with storms and. And the, yeah, and the, the setting just, and the way the setting is described too. That's another thing that Stephen King is amazing at is describing the setting with detail um sometimes you know for example your mom yeah (laughs) doesn't like stephen king because of the attention that he pays to to the details um within the setting but um another thing that i find a lot in gothic horror would be omens and i really relate a lot of the omens that when i think of it to Edgar Allan Poe's work and the raven being an omen. Um, the monkey's paw. Oh. Or we learned about, I remember in high school, I always, it was funny that I became an English major too because I really didn't like English class in high school and I didn't do very well at it. But I remember reading the monkey's paw for the first time and we talked about uh, foreshadowing. Mm. And that was, you know, in those big like lit books that they gave you. Yeah. The Did you ever days. think of reading those for fun? I mean, especially not back then. Yeah. But when I got the book, you know, when you get into a lot of English courses in college, they give you these massive books with all of these stories in them. And I ended up reading a lot of those for fun just because it's everything you need in one spot. So not not to go back a little bit, but I was surprised that you had mentioned Stephen King because I was going to mention him in describing landscapes especially uh the pet cemetery because right. the the sprawling forest i wouldn't say stephen king is ne- necessarily gothic per se but i think he is a horror author that many people are familiar with mm-hmm. which kind of connects to that idea of you know bringing these stories that you might not really you know go on to your kindle or to a, the library to pick out but you know, once it's connected to something maybe you've read before, you might give it a second shot. Yeah. And, and that was my thought is that one of the reasons we're kind of 
purifying this to its essential elements is that this is where it all begins. Like everything that creepy, spooky people these days enjoy about modern works of horror started here. Right. Although maybe there were wisps of it earlier on, centuries before, but this is really where it, you know, that kind of got magnified into an actual genre, you could say. And then a lot of these other genres have been burst forth from from this this time period. Um, when you look at things like these magic supernatural manifestations or like the suggestion of the supernatural that you find a lot in gothic horror, I think a lot about Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, and think that that was definitely like a precursor to these types of works of fiction. Also that there's that passion-driven like a hero, villain, heroine, those kind of, what's the word? Relationships. Right. We're often in Shakespeare and sort of get revisited in, in these, in these works. It's funny that from what I was reading, it sounds to me like people compare the castle of Ontranto. Otranto. It's actually Otranto because what we were looking at in episode one, mm-hmm. I we got the name from the, a Goodreads entry that spelled it wrong. Oh, awesome. I looked. Yeah. So because I was like, I thought it was always Otranto. Well, mm-hmm. I'm glad that we finally, finally figured out how to say that. Maybe we'll get it right for episode two. The w- castle where of we're actually talking about it. But a lot of people describe or compare the castle of Otranto to Hamlet. To Hamlet. But well, these connections are good. Do you think part of that is the Ophelia and like sort of the damsel in distress? In a way, although I think Ophelia is, is she a bit more complicated? Well, of course she is, but. She's Ophelia. Yeah. The iconic character. Again, there's a beautiful pre-Raphaelite work that is, the subject matter is a rendering of Ophelia that we'll put in the show notes that I could just stare at for hours i mean just gorgeous well and apparently when they painted it too the painter actually had a woman submerged in the water and she had to stay in there while he was painting it wow another element is a hero whose true identity is revealed by the end of the novel okay and can you think of a work that has that maybe the alchemist is kind of like yeah the alchemist is a good one for that a bit. Um, that also deals with ancestral curses. Right. Ugh. To that's, be cursed. Yeah, that's the one where ev- everyone in his family dies on a certain birthday, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll go over that one, although Lovecraft is a bit later on, but he is certainly inspired directly by these works in this period of time. Right. So another element is horrifying or terrifying events or the threat of such happenings. And I like to think of Dracula when I think of the terrifying events and then the threat of these events happening because, you know, they're trying so hard to protect Lucy and protect her from Dracula coming and getting her. Um, Spoilers, he gets her. But I think that's a great example of, of those terrifying events you know another thing that i find is really often referenced in gothic horror and is also definitely seen in dracula is that man versus monster idea monsters really didn't hold a lot of 
time in fiction before this, at least not that I've researched. And these monsters are complicated. You can see that by Dracula becoming, I mean, in Bram Stoker's Dracula that was um, Coppola, mm-hmm. his the his um, version in the 90s. You know, it's like a very sexy, um, desirable monster. And we see that in so many other things in modern cinema that we see like that there, it's become something else. It's a, it's a dramatic uh, retelling of the human, which, it, you know, the human condition again, which is what I love so much about it. And, you know, Frankenstein obviously is a good example of that. And the yellow wallpaper almost is a really good imagining of the monster within us or, or madness um, could be considered, you know, sometimes when you hear people retell their experiences with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or things where they are hearing voices that it's almost like there's a monster or a demon within them. So I find that to be uh, very gothic too. Yeah. And it's very interesting Maybe my favorite part about it is how the setting or the monsters, especially in Frankenstein, and you could argue that Frankenstein was the first science fiction novel, but how the monster comes to be the embodiment of human folly or hubris or some kind of comment on the human tradition. And it's so interesting, almost more interesting even than a work of philosophy, like a pure philosophical work. It's almost more interesting to explore it in this way. Oh, I definitely think it is because, um, you know, taking um, a look into a lot of philosophy, what are some of the most interesting philosophers to learn would be, you know, the Greek philosophers like, oh my gosh. Plato or Aristotle. Right, who wrote like the the one about the cave Mm -hmm. and... Atlantis and you know these things that are actually within almost like fable type stories where you're learning a philosophical theme but within the shell of a story that's kind of like the bible a little bit maybe well yeah I would say so you know I think there's a lot of learning to be found even you know whether or not you agree with the religious aspect um, you can still enjoy elements of of the bible from a purely historical or reading it as a fiction. Well, and it seems like the Bible specifically, I always kind of thought, cause I was raised Lutheran, but I always kind of thought the Bible was this monolithic thing that was written. Like the word is specifically what was, and you have a tendency to think that the Bible, I don't know, is just this thing without any backstory. But as I learned growing up more and more that there's other fables and oral accounts and histories that closely parallel the Bible, like the Great Flood. There's a Great Flood story in every single culture. Yeah, I think one of the first ones that you can see is in the Sumerian. Mm-hmm. Um, or cult. the Gilgamesh. Yeah. And um, so these retellings, you know, we kind of history repeats itself is something you could always say that you'll find a lot of these thoughts revisited within well maybe picked apart a different way in in these stories it'd be interesting to keep an eye out for things that kind of echo themes from the past or other stories that preceded these stories Mm -hmm. one thing i wanted to touch on before we get into some of the major themes that come about during gothic horror is the lenses by which we will be analyzing these pieces and 
This comes up because feminism is a frequent theme or the differences between men and women or women's place in society. Also, like other differences are these ideas of class conflict or class differences. And a comment on it is, I felt like in school, we spent way too much time doing what I consider to be a Marxist analysis, looking at things based on class and collectivism in terms of, okay, this is, we're going to analyze this just based off of how does she, you know, how, how does gender play a role in, into this? Or how does class conflict play a role in this? When I, I felt like it really focusing on only those things, while they are an important aspect of a work, it, it kind of cheapens it, or you don't see the piece as a whole, or you don't see these underlying themes that don't necessarily explicitly have to do with gender or class conflict. Mm. But gender is something that comes up a lot because you have, uh, towards the later part of this, you have women's suffrage or ideas of changing roles that women play in society. So that's an interesting thing that I'm sure we'll take a look at as well. Definitely. Um, so I think let's just kind of settle into the next section here which was kind of examining a bit of liminal states. I know we brought that up a little bit before, but some of the one, I think liminal state is huge in Gothic horror. Let's just throw out some examples of like liminal states. Again, a liminal state is like this in-between state. So some would describe it as like a rite of passage, but I think that something that the gothic horror does examine is as a liminal state is the ghosts the apparitions the man versus the monsters so as they're in between natural and unnatural um even adolescence you know there's a couple stories that we're gonna look at where the youth of the subject or the character is and a more of a classic rite of passage um, and then there's also the zombie, you know, being in between dead and alive and the uncanny. So the uncanny is one of my favorite parts of gothic horror. I'm going to let Pat sort of talk about it a bit. So uncanny, maybe those of you who have played video games knows about this thing called the uncanny valley. And the uncanny valley is when people video game designers will create a video game character that is so hyper realistic but there's something off about it and the closer that you become to create the closer that video game designers come to creating a character that is lifelike the more at risk they become of getting in the uncanny valley which is creating something that is so realistic but there's just something wrong about it a good example of this in film would be the Ex Machina yeah. movie where he actually, you know, has this guy come in specifically to see whether his um, AI is a person or not a person, you know, and kind of pick apart that because it's so uncanny how close she is to a real person. And I guess an argument of that film would be, you know, eventually she spoilers she escapes and traps the actual humans or kills them and you are 
thinking about that as an aspect of, you know, freedom is such a huge part of, of the condition of humanity. We want freedom in whatever, you know, aspect that may be. And her desire to be free doesn't, doesn't that make her more human? So I think that's a good example. If you haven't seen that movie, that's a phenomenal film. I was um, thinking maybe of Mr. Hyde, although it is two like different polarities, Dr. Jekyll versus Mr. Hyde, but Mr. Hyde seems like not human anymore. Like he looks like a human, but the the mannerisms and his anger and there's some fiendish quality about him that is just a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Or another part of the un- uncanny is I think we were talking about this in that class, our class, was that moment where you, you're driving or something like that and you see something in your periphery that just doesn't make sense and it gives you pause, like p- perhaps a terrified, petrified pause mm-hmm. and something that just doesn't make sense or when you're in your house and there's a noise you don't recognize. Yeah, or you you know you see something like a shadow out of the corner of your eye and um, shadow people. Ooh, so that's definitely uh, like a huge aspect of it. Or and the black-eyed children. <laughs> the black-eyed children being uh, this urban legend that there's children dressed in Victorian clothing that will come up to your car or your house. They'll knock on your door and they'll ask and insist on coming inside. And instead of eyes, they just have black pits. Black is the void pits. If you haven't heard of it, they're creepy. Maybe we'll put a show note page into, uh, we'll put a link to the scared to death podcast or the lights out podcast, which are two shows that we've been listening to shout out. So they do a good job of, of, telling scary tales about the black eyed children. But one thing I wanted to make sure that we had covered is exactly why, why do liminal states and the uncanny mess with us and why are they scary? I think it's because it disrupts our understanding of the world because Mm -hmm. we think we're oriented. A lot of, a lot of our peace of mind or state of mind relies on familiarity and feeling like we know things for certain Things are predictable, things are orderly, but when chaos comes or when the uncanny comes, you get this sense of dissociation. And I think that's why Lovecraft's cosmic horror is so, or gothic horror, why it's just so unsettling because it knocks you off your equilibrium and all of a sudden you don't know that you can rely on anything. Right. Absolutely. I think, I think that's a, a great little nugget there (laughs) so another theme that comes about often is this idea of the grotesque Mm. i also think that this is pretty interesting i think one of the the aspects that we can look at again you know just grabbing it really familiar works would be the you know the descriptions of what and how dracula and frankenstein came to be um, you know, Frankenstein being the sewn and attached parts of buried corpses and Dracula being 
his ability to switch between this wolf creature and a bat and you know a pile of rats and a pile of rats and 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 these things are very grotesque and i think it's a lot because the victorians had a very different relationship with death than we have today almost more of a a reverent fascination one of the things that my mom always had in our house when we were growing up was a piece of art that was you might have seen these before it's made out of human hair and it is it was beautiful it was all these flowers but when you got up really close to it you could see that it's hair and um it's very common in the time to save bits of uh, a person past their hair uh, a lock of their hair you know sometimes even like a tooth and another thing would be the photography um, you know photography was something not everyone had access to but in this time it really became more common for people to have that special photograph taken of themselves or their family and one of the things that was very common or at least far more common than we would think as a modern society was taking photographs of a recently passed uh, family member or relative and keeping that photograph with you. Some of the, the saddest and honestly most disturbing ones are the, the pictures of children, uh, stillborns in their, you know, beautiful little baptism or blessing outfits you know, and they're in the picture with their family, but they're deceased. So, yeah, it was a lot more common back then for people to die at an earlier age. At that point in time, I think it was a bit less common than centuries before. But at this point in time, they have these the ability to document it with photographs. So death would come and visit families, and it was something that was not hidden or stowed away. And one thing we discussed in this class was the great lengths to which our society goes to hide death and to avoid it. And instead of saying someone died, we'll say, oh, when did they pass? Or mm -hmm. he passed away at this point in time. And, you know, we have to dress up our corpses for open casket ceremonies or what have you. The embalming but process, the... And the lengths that we go to uh, anti-age. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting, too. And it was also very common at that point in time for families to have the dead body in their house. Where now we always just kind of ship it off to the funeral home or so-and-so comes and takes it. The paramedics take the body or the funeral home comes to the house and takes the body away and you don't see it. And you put it in the casket and you bury it and, you know. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was happening at the Victorian times is that modern medicine was coming about. And it, it was becoming less, still taboo, but less and less taboo to experiment on corpses or to dissect corpses. And the cadavers, there were thieves that would come, body snatchers that would come to steal bodies from recently buried bodies in the graveyard and sell it to a medical hospital. And it seems like almost every single medical hospital had um, bought illicitly 
these corpses from body snatchers. And an interesting thing, um, Reanimator plays around with this. My one of my favorite Lovecraft. Uh, it's a series of short stories, but the the film Reanimator. But the story has a lot more to do with body snatching and uh, reanimating corpses that have just been dug up. But I think it's a, an interesting throwback to to that bygone era. Mm. The grotesque is also something that we see a lot in uh, freak shows, for lack of a better term. At the Those circus. were one of the things during that time that I found to be really interesting was the Victorians' fascination with Egypt, fascinated with uh, the mummies. And I think we can definitely realize that fascination even today uh, some of like the most popular things you'll see on the History Channel and things like that are about the Egyptian era, um, the ancient Egyptian era. And uh, the Victorians thought that mummies um, were incredibly fascinating. So I think that that might be something that we could kind of look into as well. Um, we did read She. Uh, I forget the author's name, but... Um, I think that kind of connects a little bit with the mummification and the the saving of the bodies um, that we might be able to look at, too. Just in closing on this idea of the grotesque is that American Gothic, and I'm thinking of Truman Capote, I think Other Voices, Other Rooms was his work that primarily showed. Did you have to read that in one of your classes? No, I never have. I don't know if it was a creative writing class that I had to read it for, but all the characters are just totally grotesque and it adds to this unsettling air about the whole novel but that uh truman capote was in the 1900s and not the 1800s so a, a little more southern american gothic there but another what's another concept lizzie that we can talk about i you know one of the ones that i was thinking about a little bit was the um connects again with the victorians idea of death in the afterlife um the mysticism and the like alchemy and Aleister Crowley and the seances, those were also a huge uh, interest of, of this time era. Well, and it's funny, you get a lot of people also faking it with, with Ouija boards or you would have the, well, it was all, a lot of it was documented fake, wasn't it? All the mm -hmm. seances and, and everything like they that. They had some sort of, you know, they could turn off, the lights or you know turn out the candle with some trick and all this mysticism kind of bleeds into well one nazism <laughs> because the nazis were so obsessed with the cult the occult but i guess that happens a bit later but this also pseudoscientific exploration of things like phrenology or i don't know i can't think of anything off like the eugenics eugenics as well yeah in in some of the racial things but it's also inter it's interesting how, how people really get into that at this point in time, too. I think that one of the last things that I was thinking about is that's a gothic com concept is um, the double or like the doppelganger. Um, you know, again, Frankenstein is an example of this, you know, that we see uh, Frankenstein and his monster as doubles of the same person like you know one half of the person and the other half of the person meaning 
you know, one would be the good and then one would be the bad. And there's a couple other things within like the doppelganger that connect with the uncanny and that liminal state that I think is really interesting too. Another gothic concept would be the idea of taboo behavior. And specifically, I, I kind of referred to this before, but body snatching or desecrating a corpse or something like that. So an unholy relationship mm -hmm. or, or I don't know, I'm sure taboo sexuality comes into play as well. What, an interesting thing we talked about in class, I remember, was the fact that pornography came about. As soon as you have cameras, you have pornography coming about. Just, yeah, right away. <laughs> in film, too. And she was saying that, our professor was saying that in exploration of Victorian, because Victorians were so, from our perspective, straight-laced and hush-hush and not talking about sex, like a perusal of all their private diaries reveals that they were just as taboo and sexual as we are today, maybe even more so because it was repressed. So <laughs> um, very interesting to see. And of course, I, it would be uh, far too controversial, I think, to have all that packed into these stories. But maybe in the subtext, you kind of see it like with Dracula is very highly sexualized and all those different relationships. So as we go forward with the podcast, we're going to be trying to look and identify all of these different themes within the works that we're reading and discussing. And I, I think it'll be a really good time. I think we'll draw these connections between, we've been jumping around between all these different works and time periods and themes that come up from century to century and from author to author. So it'll be interesting to make those connections and maybe open the discussion to you folks as the audience and um, really learn how to get more value out of these works and make them more accessible. So thanks for listening to this episode. Connect with us, please. Uh, unhallowedpodcast.com. Our email is unhallowedpodcast at gmail.com. The show notes page is unhallowedpodcast.com forward slash one. Once you're there, you can also find all of our social media badges. Please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps with our rating and helps other people see the show. And make sure that you subscribe, uh, like, comment, interact with our content. All that really helps. So thanks so much again for listening, and we'll see you when we talk about the Castle of Otranto in our next episode. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>